Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. So good to see you tonight, church. I pray that you are hanging in there, hanging tough. I got some fairly good news today from Los Angeles County. I think we're nearing the supposed end of this extreme lockdown. We may see some loosening here in the not-too-distant future, allowing us to go back out on maybe the beaches and parks and golf courses and things like that with some Uh, additional restrictions being lifted in the next couple of weeks. So hang tough. God's got this. Uh, We're going to be okay. I want to strongly encourage you uh, to make sure that you're staying in touch with us, being our Slash Now page or our Slash Connect page. Uh, We'll try and give you that information as soon as we have it. So uh, it's been interesting for sure. Probably some of you have felt Uh, much like this might be it, this could be the last days. We might be near that time that Jesus spoke of there in Matthew 24. And I know as I've been reading these passages over and over again, as we turn our attention tonight to two chapters, don't worry, these two chapters only have 23 verses in them, so we're going to be okay. Uh, Hang tough, We'll, we'll move through it fairly quickly. Uh, chapters 15 and 16 in this burden that is against the region of Moab, and it brings into view some of the very last days things. And so for some of you, you're probably thinking, man, this must be the last days. I mean, if I'm cooped up with my kids any longer, I'm going to die from this more than likely. So uh, hang in there. God's got this. Uh, Encourage you to be with us next Thursday night as I uh, bring a special couple of guests And we're going to have a great time just answering your questions, whether they're biblical questions or Christian living questions or questions about whatever you want to ask, including other things that are on your heart. And so uh, do call in with those questions and we'll see what the Lord does as far as that time that we spend doing Ask the Pastor next Thursday night. So while you're there in your Bibles, if you'd open up to Isaiah The book of Isaiah in chapter 15 will begin there and we'll move through to chapter 16. Again, remind yourself, the chapter and verse designations were added by the translators so that they could find their place and they did their very best to put divisions where it seemed as though they would fit. And in this case, you have this single burden is spread over two chapters and so we'll take both chapters together and would you join me and let's pray. And give the Lord our time tonight. Father, we have come again as your children, expecting to hear from heaven. Lord, not from me, uh, not from a pastor, but from the Lord God himself, who authored these words by the Holy Spirit. And they are fit for our instruction, correction, reproof, for good, sound doctrine. And we pray that as we read your word, that you would instruct us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this burden, this particular portion, as I said, as we go through these next 11 chapters, you have these burdens of various areas of the world. And as we saw the fall of Satan last time, and now as we begin with Moab, Moab is modern-day Jordan. And we'll dig into why that is in just a moment. 
But as you look at this region of the world, you're going to see that the Lord Jesus uh, himself came into this region as a child, but this, this basic region that we call the Holy Lands, uh, these countries that are being described are the countries that surround modern-day Israel. And so you're going to see, in essence, kind of this allegiance or alignment of nations uh, that will ultimately come against Israel in the very last days. And so there is, again, a near fulfillment in the rise of the Assyrian army, and there is going to be a far fulfillment that looks forward to that time that we call the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble or the end of the times of the Gentiles or that period that would be Daniel's 70th week. And so uh, here, as we look at this, this region of the world is interesting because it's where Moses uh, spent his final days. Uh, it, it contains his supposed resting place there on uh, Mount Nebo, which is not confirmed. But having been there myself, as we drove past ne- Mount Nebo, you can see this little uh, white uh, dome that's on the top of it. And it's supposed to be where uh, Moses's bones are, and nobody's actually verified that. This is also uh, the region during Moses' time where Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam, the sorcerer, to curse the Israelites as they passed through this region. And so this region is the eastern side of the Jordan Rift Valley. And so if you just look at Jordan and Israel, they're neighbors. On one side of the Jordan River is Jordan, and on the other side is Israel. And as the source of the Jordan is in northern Israel, it empties into the Red Sea, not very, well, it actually goes into the Dead Sea and then disappears, but if it were to continue, uh, it ended up in the Red Sea. And so one side of the valley basically is Jordan, the other side is Israel. During the time of Judges, King Eglon of Moab oppressed Israel for a period of about 18 years or so, and so you kind of have a lot of history and there's a stone that now resides in the the National History Museum in London called the Moab Stone that actually records the revolt against Israel during that time. And so it's a non-biblical source. It also talks about the land of the Reubenites. And and so as you look at this period of history that's being spoken of here, this is the rise of Assyria. Assyria is coming from the north They're going to capture every bit of this area of the world uh, except for Judah and except for Jerusalem. And so the plight of Moab is actually what's in view here. Uh, The the book of Ruth takes its history from uh, the Moabite territory. The story of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, uh, is from the land of Moab. And so ultimately, the the lineage of King David tied to this Moabitess Ruth, um, actually there is a direct connection between Moab or modern-day Jordan and the children of Israel. And so as you look at this area of the world, it is interesting because if you look at uh, the Jordan River Valley, you see the city of Jericho, which now lies in the territories that the world calls the West Bank. Um, that's the, the headquarters, if you will, of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, who's acknowledged uh, recently, once again, that they will never allow for the Jewish state to exist where it is. And so we're going to see this tension uh, begin here in chapter 3. And so God turns his attention to Moab, and he's going to 
uh, speak very strongly to them. And first he speaks of these cities that are destroyed overnight. And verse one, it says, the burden against Moab, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. And because the night in the night Kerr of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. And so there's two cities that are named here. We're not sure exactly where they were. Um, some additional cities, Bajath and Debon and, and Mount Nebo and all these places are named here. And the reason that they're important is because God said they would be destroyed and they would be destroyed overnight. And there's an interesting bit of uh, archaeological work that's going on in the, in the Jordan River Valley, not very far from the Jordan River and not very far into Jordan itself, uh, looking for the, the lost city or the location of the city of Sodom. And that's not very far from these two cities. And again, interestingly enough, there's no archaeological evidence that's really above ground. There's no ancient cities that are in this valley. It's very desolate. Much of it is below sea level. And so when God says something's going to be destroyed, when God says something's going to be laid waste, that is what you can expect to find archaeologically. Verse 2, for he's gone up to the temple and Debon and to the high places to weep. And Moab will wail over Nebo. So Nebo's this mountain that supposedly Moses is buried on. Uh, he and Aaron went to that, uh, to the edge of that mountain on the way into Canaan to weep over uh, Medeba and all of their heads will be baldness. And so he begins to describe their beards would be cut off. This is all signs of weeping and wailing and gnashing teeth uh, mourning. This is what they would do during that time. A man would normally have a beard. And so if your beard was shaved off, it was normally because you were mourning. If you cut off your hair, it was normally because you were mourning. Uh, in essence, they were saying, look, this is going to be so bad in this region uh, that the whole country is going to go into mourning. And in their streets, they will clothe themselves with sackcloths, the tops of their houses. And in their streets, everyone will wail and weep bitterly. And so much like our burlap today, people would gird themselves or clothe themselves in what's called sackcloth. And sackcloth was exactly what you would think it is. It's the cloth from which sacks were made. Um, so it was not fine cloth, very coarse cloth. If you wore it in and of itself, that would be a reason to be in mourning. And so the people are clearly crying out that something bad is going to happen. So this is speaking of the near-term fulfillment uh, of what's going to happen in this region. Verse 4, he goes on to say, And Heshbon and Eliah will cry out, and their voice shall be heard as far as, far as Jahaz. And therefore the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. And so you can kind of see the picture that the people there, uh, the Assyrian army is going to come. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be wiped out. Whoever's not killed will be taken captive. Uh, basically God is saying from one end of the nation, so these cities that have just been listed, uh, begin at the edge of the border of modern-day Syria, and they continue all the way down to the edge of the border of modern-day Egypt. And basically, from one end to the other, uh, destruction is coming. Verse 5, For my heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee Zoar. And like a three-year-old heifer, uh, for by the ascent of Luthith, they will go up with weeping for the way of Hornoram. Um, they will raise up and cry for, of destruction. And from the waters of Nimrim, they'll be desolate for the green grass is withered away. And as the grass fails, there is nothing green. And therefore the abundance that they have gained, that which they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. And so this little tiny stream 
uh, that's in the middle southern portion of, of modern-day Jordan called the Brook of the Willows has now dried up. And interesting, again, the archaeological evidence for any settlements on that particular portion of modern-day Jordan is almost non-existent. Very, very, very scant um, remnants left of the destruction that happened uh, here some 2,800 years ago as the Assyrian army goes south and takes everyone and everything. For the cry has gone around to the borders of Moab, and there's wailing in Egliam and wailing in Ber Elem. Uh, for the waters of Damon will be full of blood because I will bring more upon Damon. The lions will be upon him who escapes from, escapes from Moab and upon the remnant of the land. And so he speaks of all these rivers and things that will dry up. And basically, this is a destruction passage. He's saying there's going to be nothing left. And so that is, of course, what we still find today. And so you might be asking yourself, you know, why do I even care about this? Why does God speak about ancient nations like Moab, uh, as we'll find next time in the area of modern-day Syria or the city specifically of Damascus. You have to remember that Isaiah is describing this destruction for a reason, because in his day and time, the Assyrian army is coming. So in that way, it's predictive of what's about to happen. But it's also speaking forth to our day and time, because we're going to find the final destruction of Moab, because today Moab is inhabited. And in fact, they're, because of the farming that is uh, stretched across the Jordan River Valley, that is actually the breadbasket of Jordan. And so near the River Jordan, there's tremendous farm fields. All their crops that are grown in Jordan uh, are grown in that area. Um, but the country itself will never recover from the Assyrian invasion. And in fact, when you travel there, which we will do uh, on our trip, uh, hopefully will not be canceled and we'll still get to go uh, leaving on the latter part of August and coming back in September. Uh, we'll actually travel to this very region. We'll drive down through this valley. We'll spend time in Wadi Musa, which is the, the, the in essence, the Valley of Moses. And we'll spend time in Petra, which is coming next as we look at this passage. But we're going to find some very interesting things because when you look at this region of the world, it is unbelievably desolate. It um, looks very, very similar if you've traveled to the edge of the Salton Sea, you've driven down uh, along the Salton, towards the Salton Sea from, say, Palm Springs or Palm Desert, and you uh, head towards this little town called Mecca, named actually after Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Um, when you look to the east, it's exactly the same as when you're in the Jordan Valley and you look to the east and you look at Edom, the land of the Moabites. It's very, very, very desolate and sparsely inhabited, and it's just nothing but red rocks. And so what is God doing as he describes these nations? Personally, I think he's, he's trying to speak of this region in the way that we would look at it and we would understand it. And, and then when we see it, we would actually go, you know what? God was right. God told us the truth. This area of the world uh, was destroyed, and it never recovered. And while Jordan is a nation, while Jordan uh, is one of the nations that surrounds Israel, that actually has a peace treaty with Israel, um, it is still a very, very impoverished nation and a very sparsely, and very sparsely populated nation, and especially this area. And, and so 
as you look at your Bible, you have to ask yourself then a subsequent question. Well, that's good. That's, that's okay. It confirms some things that God has said, but is there something more to it? And the fact of the matter is there is something more to it. Because the whole of the Bible, everything about it, from Genesis to Revelation, is really revealing the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scarlet thread of redemption is woven through from Genesis to Revelation. And so everything that we read ultimately has a purpose in us being able to know that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah. He is our Savior as believers in him. And so in the past, these are the nations that tried to wipe out the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the source. Uh, The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, was born to a Jewish couple uh, who lived in Nazareth, amen? So if you can wipe out the Jewish people, if, if you can destroy them from the face of the earth, if you can stop them from getting into the promised land, stop them from existing, then of course you will have stopped the lineage of Messiah. And very specifically with Moab, you would have bumped off Ruth, the Moabitess, who would be in the lineage, the heritage of King David, who is in the lineage, the heritage of Jesus himself from a human standpoint. And so in in the present day, of course, all of these things will point towards a time uh, that that I think is not far around the corner, given what we're seeing going on in the world. Um, No matter what time period you really look at your Bible, it's always pointing us towards Christ. It's always moving us towards the Lord, either his first coming or his second coming. Uh, And so... People are kind of losing their minds at times over this particular cluster of chapters that we're going to be in, and they see all kinds of fanciful things in there. And one of those things, uh, and it's a, it's a theory that's been thrown around since the early 1920s, and that is that all of the Jewish people in their entirety, in mass, will be hidden in the rock city of Petra uh, during the tribulation, and they're preserved uh, miraculously by the Lord. And I have to tell you that there is almost no biblical evidence for that being the case, because one of the passages that's used to prove that uh, is next before us here as we begin chapter 16. And the other thing that people often point to in chapter 18 uh, is that the United States is mentioned in Scripture. And I think that the evidence biblically there is also monumentally thin, if not completely non-existent. And so why is that important? Because the Bible's not about the United States of America. Uh, and the Bible is, is about Christ. The Bible is about the Lord Jesus. And so you wouldn't expect the Lord to expound to a group of people in an ancient time period uh, about some nation that has not even come into existence yet and wouldn't for uh, the better portion of 2,500 years, as far as the United States is concerned, nor would he give a specific place where somebody's going to be hidden in advance, because if you had that information and you were in the last days, uh, you would know exactly where the Jewish people are, and you would just simply go to Petra and wipe them all out. And so it, it does not make any sense. And so as we dig in in chapter 16 and verse 1, I told you I think we can make it through both chapters tonight, uh, that... Uh, the place that I want to focus is really on how does this 
factor in uh, to the Lord and to his plans going forward. Because I know that one day, uh, whether that's tonight, the church is going to be raptured. I know that one day uh, there is going to be the rise of the Antichrist. I know one day there's going to be a battle that we call the Battle of Gog and Magog that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 when Russia and its allies will come against Israel. Uh, They will be soundly defeated. I know these things because my Bible says so. And they're going to be preserved as the Antichrist rises up and he's going to be one day defeated, even though he will have been worshipped himself for three and a half years in this rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, which is not currently there. So it still must be future. And so the timing of all of this is based on Uh, Is this pointing us towards a relationship and the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I believe it is. And so here in chapter 16, it begins with these words, send a lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. And so this is a city that is in Moab and from there to the mount of the daughter of Zion, which would be Jerusalem. And for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of her nest, and so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like in the night, in the middle of the day, and hide the outcasts, and do not betray him who escapes. And let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab, and be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. And in the mercies of the throne, it will be established. And one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David. And so this is obviously speaking of a time that for us tonight would be yet future judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. And so these next several chapters actually behind the scenes, we have the rise of the Assyrian army, a strong, powerful modern force that at that time was headquartered in modern-day Iraq. The city of Mosul uh, was the ancient city of Nineveh. And so here comes this tremendous army. They're going to march through. But is that all that's going on here? And so the first nation in this list of nations that's going to be a burden to the world and then destroyed by the Assyrian army is modern-day Jordan. And here, one word is used, and this one word is actually used as basically the proof text um, for this group of refugees. It would be from the city of Zion, the city of David also, Uh, the city of Jerusalem, which obviously would be the headquarters and the home of the Jewish people, uh, that this one word is is this mention of Selah, which is a word in Hebrew that means rock. Its Greek equivalent is Petra. And so being as Petra is in the area of Moab, which it is, uh, that this is the reason that we are to believe that the Jewish people who would be wandering from Jerusalem during the tribulation days, that they would be hidden in that area and so that a shadow would not fall upon them. And so uh, this is part of the, the, the portion of that proof text in Isaiah 2, which we'd act already gone through, uh, provides the rest of it. And so 
Uh, from Isaiah 2, it says there in verse 2, and it should come to pass in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house. Uh, this is interesting because Petra, uh, in a general sense, has always been a holy place. When you travel there, there's tombs, there are sepulchers, there are places of worship everywhere in the rock city of Petra. But it's actually in the top of the mountains. Uh, it, it's at nearly 3,000 meters, 3,000 feet, roughly. Uh, and so you have this uh, rock city that you're going to enter in verse 2 of Isaiah 2. Remember it said, enter into the rock. Well, the entrance into the rock city of Petra is through an area called the Seek, uh, and it's just solid rock. It's a cleft. At times, it's less than nine feet wide. Um, at times, it's over 90 meters or 300 feet uh, tall. Uh, you'll be hidden in the dust when you travel through there. It's very dusty. There's fine sediments of sand. It's an erosion area. And so there's kind of speculation on speculation, so on and so forth. If you go through chapter two, you combine it with this mention of one single word uh, that can be transliterated, in other words, taken from language to language. Uh, If you go from Salah to Petra, um, then they're going to be hidden in in Petra. And just frankly, it's speculation upon speculation. And it is not exposition of scripture. It's just simply saying that Salah and Petros are the same thing. So it's got to be Petros or Petra. And that's the reason. One of the crazy things is the church has kind of been guilty of promulgating this particular myth. And when you search through, because I did to kind of find out where in the world did this all come from? How did we get here kind of thing? um, I was curious and found out that, in fact, the origins are the church from the 1920s uh, here in the U.S. for the most part. Um, The American Board of Missions to the Jews, a man named Joseph Hoffman Cohn, uh, circulated a booklet uh, during World War II. In fact, he had hundreds of thousands of them printed, and he was going to store them in the rock city of Petra, you know, so that when the tribulation happened, that the Jews would find them and they'd be able to find Messiah and all those kind of things. Uh, he, he made some wild speculations uh, about how many people that lived there, and lived there during ancient times, like a quarter of a million people. And having been there myself and walked through the seek and gotten down to the widest part of the city, it's a magnificent space, but realistically, maybe 50,000 people could uh, fit in there. And so as he names W.E. Blackstone and all these scholars that supposedly said, well, this is it. Um, by the time it gets to the 1950s, that's picked up by the Worldwide Church of God. Um, George Armstrong, as he promulgates this myth even further, he says, well, it's because of a couple of Islamic legends. And the first of those is that this was the spring of Moses. The second of those is that Wadi Musa or the Valley of Moses was located there, and it was a local Islamic legend, and so it has to be true. And so the reason I'm sharing this with you is if you go back through your Bible and you just simply look at this area of the world, it becomes very clear that when the children of Israel are counted as having gone in there in Numbers chapter 20, uh, when you look at the scriptures to verify these things, you're going to find out that there's no support whatsoever for the children of Israel having ever been in Petra. Um, They would have likely entered the Jordan River Valley, not very far from the Dead Sea. They would have come from the mountains, but they certainly would have not traveled through the mountains to get uh, to this very verdant valley that ultimately has a river in the middle of it. Uh, And so uh, they wouldn't have needed a spring to to water the entire group of people, even though, of course, the 
your Bible does tell us that uh, there was a spring. That's where Moses hit the rock. And because there's rocks there, he hit the rock there. And because the spring was there, they all stayed right there. Um, again, traveling through the area, you're going to find that that's not very likely. And so Petra um, is also nowhere near the southern border. And so you put all of this stuff together and it just simply looks like God's giving us a little bit of information uh, about the region of the world where some of the children of Israel may be hidden in the very last days, where some of the Jewish people might go. It's certainly possible that some of them could. Uh, but currently there are almost 9 million people that live in Israel, and they certainly are not all going to fit in the rock city of Petra. And so be careful about making statements um, that are hard to back up with Scripture with regard to these places and things and speaking of them too authoritatively. I myself at times have, have done things like that, and I've lived long enough and been in ministry long enough to tell you uh, it is almost always a mistake. And so what we have here, to me, is very, very clearly uh, a dual fulfillment. We're looking at the time when the Assyrian army is going to come. And so he says, hide the outcast there in verse 4. Well, that certainly meant the outcast of the people during that day because there were some. But it also looks forward to the tribulation when there will be outcasts from the city of Zion. And so Daniel, as he picks up that prophecy, as he talks about these 77s that are determined on Israel to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring everlasting righteousness, and then to seal up the prophecy and to anoint the holy place, those things haven't happened yet for the Jewish people. And so as Daniel's final week unfolds before us, we can pretty clearly see that there's still some parts of this, at least, that have yet to occur. And so as this commandment goes out, which is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, and as the children of Israel return to the city, they certainly don't return to a perfectly built city of Jerusalem. In fact, the temple is so decrepit that during Ezra's time, the people actually bemoaned the temple. And it wouldn't be until Herod, the Sidemean ruler, comes along and rebuilds the temple and covers it parts of it with gold and builds this beautiful edifice that there would even be a temple that they would be kind of proud of. And they certainly never got to dedicate that temple in the way that they wanted to because that was the temple that was there during Jesus' time. And so it was a hotly contested of the area of the world then. And then 70 years later, it's destroyed by uh, the Roman general Titus. And it does not exist till this day. So it must be speaking of another time. And so Jesus, speaking of this same time that I believe is in view here in Matthew chapter 24, says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which Daniel speaks of that time, uh, when that prince of the people to come shall make a covenant with Israel for this final week. When you see that, which was spoken of by Daniel, standing in the holy place, then flee to the wilderness. So here's where it gets interesting, because that wilderness is north of Jerusalem and east of Jerusalem. That's where the wilderness is in Israel. If you go west at all, it's completely populated. If you go west at all, it's where all the farming is. If you go west at all, it's where all the commerce is. If you go west at all, you end up in Tel Aviv or Haifa or Ashkelon or someplace along the coast where the Jewish people have built beautiful cities. Um, but there's no temple, and yet it says 
if you see this thing that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then you can flee. Don't be on the roof of your house. Don't even bother grabbing your coat, Jesus said. Just get out as quickly as you can. If you're in the field working, don't return to your house. Get down to the wilderness just as quickly as possible. Well, interestingly enough, Jerusalem is elevated. The Dead Sea is below sea level. So down is the only direction that the wilderness is. And so the Jewish people are being told to head definitely down towards Jordan and towards the wilderness, which would be in Judea. So he is saying, go that direction. But we have some additional things that are told to us in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. We have some further things that are there in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And so when this happens, when this occurs, there's got to be some other reason. And so what is it? What's the whole goal, if you will, uh, of this time that we call the tribulation, that Daniel called the 70th week, that Jeremiah said was the time of Jacob's trouble, that we call the tribulation of days? What is the purpose of that? The book of Joel actually gives us the purpose for that time. It says that God one day is going to pour out his wrath on this earth, primarily for three reasons, and that's that the world has come against the land that belongs to God that he gave to Israel. They've attempted to divide that. They've mistreated the Jewish people and they dispersed the Jewish people. That's the reason your Bible in the book of Joel gives for the final week of Daniel's prophecy. And before that can happen, there's a couple of other things that need to occur. Because when you look at the entirety of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to chapter 19, there's not a mention of the church save one place, and that's the church in heaven. And so the church is gone. The church is out of this circumstance. This church is uh, what we would say, what I would say, has been raptured, harpazo, taken up by force, snatched away by force, brought up into heaven exactly as you see in chapter 4, where it says, I saw the door open in heaven, and the first voices of the trumpet says, come up here, and I'll show you things which will be after. And immediately I was caught away by the Spirit into where? Heaven. Not to some place on earth, to heaven. And then we have this worship service that unfolds in chapter 4. And then the angels join in in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. And in the midst of all this, there's the title deed of heaven and earth that's being opened up in this scroll. And there's this cry by the angels who says, Worthy is he who is, is the one who was and is and is to come. Worthy is he to take the scroll and lose the seal. And it goes on to say, don't weep for the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the scroll and to loosen it up. And so there's this worship service in heaven. As that worship service is in heaven, Jesus opens the scroll and he says, okay, game on. It's time to get this wrath party started in a sense. It's time to do what we've always planned to do, which is defeat the devil, to take care of the Antichrist, to restore what sin has rotted and stolen, uh, to take care of sin and its cause, which is the devil himself and the Antichrist. And so this song that begins to unfold 
Uh, is this song of the redeemed people who were in heaven and the angels join in. They, we sing the verse and they sing the chorus, basically. And so then, that, that first seal, and a white horse with its rider came forth, conquering and to conquer. And so the Lord uh, gets engaged in this battle and, and you have this, the Antichrist rises, the battle of Ezekiel 38 occurs, and so... There's all this action going on on earth. And so it appears that this passage before us in the book of Isaiah, where it says, well, hide my captives, take care of the people of Jerusalem, make sure that you spare the Jewish people is a future fulfillment of what's going to happen in the very last days. And so, Isaiah begins to lament over all of this. He just says, it's, it's like, it's too much for me. Uh, he, he sees in one sense the future fulfillment of what is going to happen to the Jewish people. And he's just astonished by it. And he begins to now just kind of weep over Moab. And so he says in verse one of chapter 16, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. This wandering bird has been thrown out. And so we, this, this picture of the children of Israel wandering out into the desert, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow uh, in the night in the middle of the day and hide these outcasts. So this is speaking forth into that time when the Antichrist, the man of sin, rises up and says, he's the spoiler in this passage in these first five verses. He's the extortioner in these first five verses. He's the one that's going to torment the Jewish people for 1,290 days. He's the one that's going to be behind Russia invading the Middle East. He's the one that's going to rise up with these 10 nations from Europe, out of the European Union uh, and, and take over, in essence, the entire uh, leadership of the world with a monetary system, a governmental system, and a religious system. Behind all of that, God is going to marvelously and wonderfully preserve the Jewish people as they flee into the wilderness, as they're driven out of Jerusalem and the area surrounding it, this time that we call the Great Tribulation. God will be by their side, and basically what Jordan is told, interestingly enough, is protect them. Watch over them. Don't let the armies of the world destroy them. And strangely, and in a very unique way, one of the things that becomes very evident when you travel, especially to Jerusalem, is this direct connection between the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan and its king, and the city of Jerusalem, which half of it is in essence Jordanian territory or Jordanian controlled. And very specifically, the Temple Mount is Jordanian controlled. And so in that sense, when you look at these very last days, you kind of have a problem because the Temple Mount itself is controlled by the Jordanians. There is a very large mosque called the Al-Aqsa the Haram al-Sharif, the Mosque of Omar. It sits pretty much dead in the middle of the Temple Mount. But there needs to be a Jewish temple up there for these things to come to pass. And in fact, Ezekiel chapter 40 gives us a picture of this wall is built there. And so 
Back in the 1990s, they did a number of studies, and it does appear that at least from what they can see with ground-penetrating radar, that it may have been that just slightly adjacent to the, the eastern gate, which is walled up currently, uh, is the foundation walls for the Temple of Herod. And so it would allow for the Mosque of Omar to stay and this alliance, because the Mosque of Omar is controlled by Jordan, and your Bible says, take care of them, watch over them, keep them. And so could it be that in the very last days, Jordan actually becomes somewhat of an ally to the Jewish people, allowing them to actually flee and allowing the building of that, of that final uh, temple during something other than the kingdom age. There will be a fourth temple, but that third temple to be actually be built so that the Antichrist would have some place that he could set himself up to be worshipped. And so we have in view kind of this pride of Moab, verse 7, because we've already read down to verse 6. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. They're going to wail over themselves. Everyone will wail for the foundations of Ker, um, Herseth. Uh, you will mourn, and surely they are stricken for the fields of Heshbon languish, the vine of Shipma. And the Lord of the nations have broken down its choice plants. And so this is where it gets interesting because the Lord of the nations is plural. And actually in this context, it seems to me there's an allegiance or an alliance of nations that have now come against the children of Zion, which have reached to Jezir and watered through the wilderness or branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea and therefore I will bewail the vine of Shibma and with weeping of Jezar and I will drench with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliah, for the battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. And so it now takes us back to the time of Isaiah. The gladness is taken away, the joy from the plentiful field, and in the vineyards there'll be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses, and they made their shouting cease, and therefore my heart will resound with the harp for Moab. It's like they're playing this sad song uh, for what Moab once was, my inner being for Kerhares, and for it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray and not prevail. But this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying within three years, so you can see it's now moved back to Isaiah's timeline, and as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with a great multitude and the remnant will be very small and feeble. There was a cry of the people during that day. It was the cry of Hadad. They would just march and they would shout and Hadad, Hadad is mighty, mighty. It's this, it's this cry that they would normally, when they're victorious, shout. And basically they're saying this cry will cease. They're they're going to lose. They know that's going to happen. And if you notice at the end of chapter 16, something interesting, that the glory of Moab or modern day Jordan, or as it was known in the early 1900s uh, during the time of the Balfour, Balfour Declaration as Transjordan. Transjordan was huge. And in fact, it took up parts of modern day Iraq and a little bit of northern Saudi Arabia and parts of Lebanon. It was almost all of Syria. It was this gigantic place. And so when you look at Moab today, it is small. It is tiny. 
It is feeble. It actually needs the help of the United States of America. And matter of fact, they fly the same jets uh, that the Israelis fly. They have the same armor as the Israelis have for the most part, except for the Israelis now make their own tank called the Merkava, which is one of the best battle tanks in the world. But in three years, Assyria conquered Moab. It ceased being a nation. It was wiped out. It's desolate. And apart from Amman in the north and Aqaba in the south, um, it is to this day a desolate place. And so I pray that the Jordanians have read this passage and realize that they have a part to play in the very last days of protecting the nation Israel. And they take it seriously because God himself gave it to them. Amen. Would you join me and we'll pray. Father, we're so grateful. Lord, so grateful for the words that you have given us ahead of time so that we know what to look at when we look at the world. We know what to see when we're seeing it. Uh, we know how to, to view the world that we live in in these last days. And God, as we have been going through this time of uh, stress and strain and even one might say plague and pestilence here in our own country, really around the world, um, it has caused us to look to heaven. And as you have made these things known to us, we pray uh, that God, you would seal these things as truth in our minds, that we would uh, view the world around us correctly, and that God, you would cause us to walk with you closely. And so we bless you. We give you this time. We're so grateful for the chance to meet even virtually. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would make the time of our separation short. Bring us back together again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.